Welcome to the next instalment of Digital Health Matters, the podcast for everyone who wants to hear from digital health thought leaders about the hot topics, innovations and emerging technologies shaping the future of healthcare. I'm your host, Pat Burns, Healthcare Growth Director at 6B. And today I'm joined by Liz Ashall Payne, founder and CEO of Orca, the organization for the review of care and health apps. Originally a speech and language therapist with almost 20 years of NHS experience, Liz founded Orca in 2015 to offer guidance to developers to help raise app quality, as well as helping the public and healthcare professionals to confidently find and apply apps that can genuinely improve patient care and organizational outcomes. So thank you ever so much for joining us, Liz. No, thank you for having me. So yeah, just this weekend, I was chatting with my wife who was saying that she was looking to, well, wanting to look at a career change into speech and language therapy. Oh, so okay. then doing my research for this and seeing your background and, and where you came from. So talk us through your journey from speech and language therapists to founder and CEO of Orca. Yeah, because it's, uh, it wasn't quite as linear as that. Um, so when people ask me about my story, I quite often just reflect at the time in my life when we're, which is the same for all of us, we're all asked about 15 or 16 years of age, what is it you want to do? And I have a 17 year old son and he has no idea, but we're all asked that question. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew fundamentally that I wanted to help people. So I didn't know which job I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to help people and I knew that that was my passion. And so that actually took me into thinking about healthcare roles. But I also knew that I didn't want to be a doctor or a nurse because I'm really squeamish. And so I managed to find um, allied health professionals, um, so physiotherapy, occupational therapy, and speech and language therapy. And I thought, oh, that sounds really interesting. So I hung my hat on that and went off to university and did my degree. And when I qualified and got a job um, working as a speech and language therapist, my first day of clinic, I thought, this is it today I'm going to help people um, and at the end of that day I felt really frustrated and the reason I felt really frustrated was because I'd only been able to help six people and the six patients that had been booked in for me and I knew that there was waves of people waiting to have access to speech and language therapy services for either assessment or therapy and I thought well how do we help more people and I suppose that's been my driving passion ever since. So that was nearly 25 years ago. And what happened for me was this was before we, I'd even ever sent an email, let alone typed a letter or um, had a smartphone. So, but I got interested in quality improvement and thinking about, well, how do we improve access to more healthcare? Fast forward 15 years, and by now I've worked in pretty much any, any kind of health or care service and sector that you can imagine so primary care community care acute care social care etc and saw the rise of technology and it was about this time that i thought this is a real enabler to achieving access to healthcare and stripping out more waste improving efficiencies then the smartphone arrived and started to see digital health apps and i thought well this is it this is the answer we just need to put great health apps in front of people but of course it's not that simple and for me, I got really obsessed with the missed opportunity, which is everybody had bought a smartphone. At the time, we had about 30,000 digital health apps and nobody was embracing the opportunity. And I 
just kept asking why why are we not embracing this opportunity mm. and there were some fundamental reasons trust being one of them but before trust awareness people didn't even know that these technologies existed um third of all access so once you become aware and you can trust the technology where do you access it yeah. it's just finding a long list is a problem let alone finding the right technology for the patient sat in front of you and then the other big barrier was very much around governance and monitoring what technologies have gone where and if there's a future fault um, how can we do a recall and so I got really obsessed with those as problems and um, by now I've been working internationally as well as in this country and thought somebody else will have solved these problems and they hadn't and I had set up my own consultancy so I was working independently and managed to um, have a conversation with anybody who would talk to me about this problem. Um, one day I had a conversation with somebody who developed a health app um, and he said, oh, I think that some investors might be interested in investing in this. And that was where the start of the story of Orca begins. Wow, that is a fascinating story. But yeah, and I, I totally align with your not knowing what to do when you were starting out as a 16, 17 year old. I was, yeah, I think I was in the same boat until I was like 23, 24. So that's amazing, amazing story. So yeah, I guess, as you know, like a lot of our customers and well, and shared customers are digital health innovators that will no doubt have seen Orca's successful trajectory and are seeking to emulate that or do something very similar. Mm. What would you say that your luckiest break has been along the way with Orca? So I think, um, actually, it's probably not going to be what anybody's expecting me to say, but I think I was so obsessed with the problem and I never planned on setting up Orca as a business. I just wanted to fix the problem. But I think that's probably stood me in good stead because on the journey of growing a company, it's really hard and you need resilience. And in order to get that resilience, you're going to need passion. And I was so passionate and also really frustrated about the problem and the missed opportunity that I could see. And that's probably been um, the burning drive for me to carry on even when things have been difficult. And it's still my burning passion today. You know, I still want to help more people have access to healthcare. And I really believe what we're doing will achieve sustainable healthcare for everybody. So I think having a passion and being passionate about the problem we're trying to solve, not the solution, because the solution will change. And then I suppose that fundamentally, I did have a super lucky break because the start of that conversation with that um, innovator, he said, I think an investor will invest in, in this. And I wasn't seeking any right. of that. So he said, write me a business plan. And I'll put it in front of some investors. Right. And it is a little bit fairy tale. So um, I wrote this business plan, sent it off to him. No NDA wasn't because I, I just wanted somebody to fix the problem. And um, the following week, I got a landline phone call and a voice said, is that Liz? And I said, yes. And he said, it's Sir Terry Leahy. And I said, oh, okay. And um, he said, I've been given your business plan and I'd like to have a conversation with you about that. So we had a Dragon's Den style conversation. And um, a few days later, him and a colleague, Bill Curry, Said that they would seed fund the company from that idea stage and at the time I thought well I'm gonna to have to give this a go then answer there's absolutely no reason why I wouldn't and that was very very fortunate in the in the fact that you know 
it was something I was really passionate about and I um, had managed to be put in front of some amazing people who were willing to seed fund my idea. Wow. Yeah, that yeah, that passion is certainly infectious. And I think that that's what we often find when in conversations with digital health innovators that are looking to typically looking to try and solve a problem that they've encountered along their way through mm. their you know, previous life as a, as a clinician or, or current life as a clinician, that sort of thing. So that's, yeah, amazing story. I saw the article posted on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago where you've also been named in the independence top 10 of the E2E uh, 100 female business entrepreneurs. So firstly, massive congratulations on that. But tell us what that means to you. Well, I mean, to be honest, at first I was a bit surprised. Um, because we hadn't applied for this. Well, I, I think I'd heard of it, but I, didn't, I wasn't particularly familiar with it. Um, but I think what they do is they just look at the growth of the company um, right. based on the amount of growth that you've had over the predominant um, year. So um, we were the eighth fastest growing female-led um, company in the country. So yeah, I mean, it was it's like, wow. Um, and I think but there's a few things for what it means to me. The biggest thing is it's an amazing reflection on the team. Um, you know, I'm really lucky. People might know my name and I know lots of people, but it's it's not me. It's everybody else. And it's really great to be able to say, and look, even though, um, you know, it's been hard because everybody at Orca is passionate and they work really hard. Look at what you've achieved. And I also think it gives that sense of reflection where you can just pause for a moment and say, yeah, we're, we're doing okay. And just stop because I think when you are passionate and also frustrated about a problem, you're always thinking, what do I need to sort out next? Where do I go next? And so that looking back and just pausing for reflection is, is not always easy. Um, so yeah, so those two things I would say. Incredibly modest. And uh, yeah, I think the that organic sort of recognition then is almost even more impressive that you've not applied for something like that. So yeah, massive kudos to you and to the Orca team. So yeah, and then I also saw that you've been nominated for the Tech UK main board and I could see yeah. why they would want to have someone like you involved, Liz. And yeah, I've also voted for you, by the way. Oh, bless you, um, thank you, that's kind. But, um, <laughs> what, yeah, tell us why, why was that something that you were keen to get involved in? So I think, you know, and people might think, well, you know, you're clinical by background. A lot of your work has been in the public sector. But what happened for me was one of my last roles within um, the NHS was working within one of these organisations called an academic health science network. Some people may have heard of them. And I was there when they were very, very, very first created. And the mission behind those organisations are really what got me interested in small to medium sized enterprises which is very much about wealth generation. And quite often, particularly within our culture, we don't like to talk about money, but it's a really important agenda. And the reason it's important from a health perspective is because wealthier populations are healthier. There's a direct correlation. If people are in work and earning money, then they're able to just quite simply have a house, put the heating on, eat mm. food, you know, they've got time to, uh, you know, mental, from a mental health perspective. And so helping people to have wealth or have jobs and supporting that economic environment to be thriving in this country is really important for the economy, yes, but also from a health perspective. And for me, what we've seen 
you know, if we look back 100 years, there's been a real revolution, a technology revolution. And technology is where the future of our workforce will be. You know, we are seeing that um, some roles are potentially going to be made redundant in the future because of technology. But it's yeah. just opened up a whole other area. Somebody now has to build the technology. Anybody who works in this sector will know that finding coders is really challenging. So, yes, it's you know, it offers a shift in different roles. But for me, I really believe that if we can make the UK amazing to work in, amazing amazing place to be innovative in, that will support the growth of SMEs, which will support the growth of the economy, which will support the health outcomes of our population. And so the whole thing is directly linked. And, you know, one of my proudest things at Orca is that we employ over 100 people. I never thought about that when I started. But to be able to watch people be able to earn a good salary and go out and buy homes, create a family, have a, it's it's just amazing. I want to do more of that. Well, yeah, again, totally agree with you. And I, and I think the point that you make around technology potentially taking over jobs is a real interesting topic of conversation. And one you see thrown around on LinkedIn all the time, especially with everything new coming around, out around AI and chat GPT and whether that's going to be able to take people's jobs. But actually it's taking another view of it is, is using technology as an, an enabler or, or seeing it that way is, yeah. is absolutely key. So yeah, yeah, totally, totally agree with that. So yeah, on to digital health then. We both work with innovators on a, on a daily basis. What in your mind are some of the key challenges facing innovators looking to build applications and solutions, particularly for, you know, the NHS market? So there's a lot, um, and um, so I'll just try and go through the whole process. So the first challenge you've got is um, validating the problem. So just because you've personally, either as a patient or a clinician or somebody working or living in this country has seen, you have to validate that it is actually a problem and that it wasn't just a one-off problem for you. Um, once you have validated it, the next challenge is, who else has validated this? Because if lots of people have experienced this as a problem, there might be lots of people trying to solve it. And therefore, there might already be products and solutions and innovations out there that are going to do what you're attempting to build. So it's about understanding the competitor marketplace and what's worked, what's already out there. This is also a challenge for the NHS as well. If you have found a problem, how do you go out and find the solution? Yeah. So it's on both sides of the coin. Now, the next challenge, and um, you know, we support a talk at the Clinical Entrepreneur Programme for, with NHS England and mentor a number of clinical entrepreneurs, and we see that they have validated a problem and they've considered what a solution might look like, and we can support them with understanding what that competitive landscape, right. landscape looks like. Your next problem is then how do you fund to minimum viable products? So how do you then create your innovation into something that can be used? Now, I've been really fortunate to be able to support Innovate UK um, in some of their grant um, allocations. And I always say you should try that. But of course, that's very competitive. The next thing is that you self-fund, which not very many people are in a position to be able to do. The third is that you go out for investment. And of course, the market's really shifted particularly over the last 12 to 18 months, and there's a lot, a lot more nervousness around investing in early stage companies. So that initial investment can be difficult. 
And the other reason that can be really challenging is because in order to work in a healthcare environment with something that's innovative, you have to also make sure that your minimum viable product is safe and effective, which is in other sectors, not necessary. You can just throw something out there. You yeah. can't do that in healthcare. And so the investment that's required is more significant than it would be in another sector. Now, once you've built your product, your next challenge is getting people to even know it exists. And then once they do, well, do you know it exists, helping them to understand they can trust it. Now, in this country, we and the NHS, we've got something called the DTAC, uh, which is a digital health assessment framework by which if you can say that you've met that criteria, people can trust you. But once they've trusted your um, technology, your next challenge is how do you then get it to the patient? So if an ICS buys a thousand licenses of your technology, how do you then get it to the clinician and onto the patient so that people are starting to use and benefit from your um, technology? And of course, how do you get procured and how do you get reimbursed? Um, and so some of those challenges are pretty fundamental. It's not all doom and gloom because that's a lot of problems, but those are really some of the challenges that we've been trying to resolve for the last eight years. So. Um, you know, the idea for Orca was really founded on the way in which drugs are procured and distributed. And so in the world of drug distribution, when a drug is first brought to market, there's a clear licensing process, which is about making sure that it's safe and effective. There's then um, a curriculum where would-be prescribers go and learn about drugs. They then have access to the British National Formulary to look at a drug, and then they have a prescription infrastructure, which means that you can prescribe that drug to your patient, and then you can go collect it from the pharmacy. That's exactly what Orca are doing. So we're evaluating and testing technologies. We do it on an ongoing basis every time the technology updates and changes. We then put that information into training for would-be distributors, would-be interested healthcare professionals of digital health. We then create local formularies of digital health technologies and provide the um, prescription infrastructure so that you know what digital technology has gone to whom. Um, and then we partner with people like London Procurement Partners to create procurement frameworks for um, digital health technologies. Now, I'm not saying that that means it's all really simple here because there is still a fragmentation, but I think... We are quite lucky in this country in that the bits of the jigsaw puzzle that need to be in place are starting to form a proper connected picture. So, yeah, you talk about DTAC, Liz. And so Orca helps organisations around the world deliver safe digital health. And a key way that you do this is supporting companies through DTAC. Now, DTAC can be, well, is a complex and can be an intimidating process. Yeah. But so can you tell us why why it's so crucial that digital health apps comply with the standards and regulations covered by DTAC and what advice you would give to companies starting out on their, on their DTAC journey? So just for a few points of clarity, so um, Orca do assess to DTAC, but when we work in other countries, there are other... Um, digital health assessment frameworks that we assess to and what we do when we take a technology if you came to us and said we want to put this product through a DTAC we would first of all put you through the baseline review assessment a baseline review assessment is the aggregated questions that everybody on a global level wants to know the answer to it's about 75 percent of a DTAC 
But the reason we do that is because if you're not meeting those more basic fundamentals, you're not going to meet the next level. So we want to help innovators on a compliance journey. So we take technologies through that baseline review, and it also stands you in good stead for all countries across the planet. So then what you then do is you then say, okay, I want to now go and do the additional requirements for DTAC, which are predominantly around data protection, um, data security, and clinical safety. And then we put those technologies through that process. So why is it important? Well, the biggest reason is because you need to differentiate your product. So there are about 360,000 digital health um, products out there on the marketplace. And our research has found that only 20% meet the quality criteria that you would expect. That's at that minimum level, at that baseline. Those products that meet the DTAC are therefore even less. And so if you really want to differentiate yourself in a a crowded marketplace, the best thing that you can do is make sure you are DTAC compliant. The reason it'll differentiate you is because the NHS can then feel confident that they can trust you. Um, and what's really interesting is we did a piece of research actually asking NHS healthcare professionals what would help them feel comfortable in recommending a technology. And the answer <clears throat> was a badge of trust. Right. And that was five times more significant than you having seen six clinical trials for a technology company. Wow. So it's the biggest marker of trust, um, and it really um, supports you in differentiating yourself in a marketplace. That's intriguing. I had no idea of those stats, of that data, that only 20% would, would meet the baseline assessment. That's um, that's incredible. So I guess going back to a previous comment or a previous point that you made, Liz, around, you know, innovators starting out in their journey and have come up with an idea that may meet a problem that they've encountered in their path. So I'm a firm believer in user centricity when it comes to the design and build of applications and and getting feedback from users or patients from the outset to ensure that you're building a product that actually meets their needs and meets the needs of more than just one person or a few people. So I think this has been a key topic of conversation at both uh, Het North event and Digital Health Rewired that we attended earlier this year. What are your views on involving patients from the outset in, in digital health innovation? Yes, I think it comes back to the point that you made there about the problem. So you need to get really deep into what is the problem you're trying to solve and for who. And the who bit is really important. So if you just say for adults, well, that isn't clear enough. Which adults? What age of de- what demographic profile do these adults have? A visual impairment, or a hearing impairment, or a cognitive impairment? Are they on an iPhone, or are they on an Android phone, or is it a web-based technology? You need to get really detailed about who it is you're trying to help, really specifically. So we see um, a lot of technologies who say, "Oh, and it can be used for children," mm, but can it? And which children, because the difference between a three-year-old, a six-year-old and a 10-year-old is pretty fundamental. So you need to get really specific about who it is you're going to engage with. And then I think to your point, bringing them in really early on, again, around validation of the problem, because you may have seen something, but you will have biases. There's no point in saying you might have biases. You will have biases, even if you personally have experienced the problem. So how can you then make sure that you're validating the problem and then building something that meets 
all those people's requirements and then you go out and you test it further and the other thing i'd just say is this is a never-ending piece of work and the reason why is because your technology will keep changing but so too will the attitudes and the behaviors of your um, consumers or clients so we're all changing how we work and live with technology all the time and so that user testing is continuous Right, so yeah, that leads me on to a follow-up question then, Liz. And this is, I guess, putting this back on onto you and what you guys are doing at Orca in that case. So I, you talk about meeting the needs of your users and clients. So I loved reading about your your new Digital Health Academy. Yeah. So yeah, what inspired you to set this up? I talked a little bit about how we try and mirror the distribution of drugs, but in the world of technology, and that critical point of. Um, after you've evaluated or tested a drug, you then need to put it into the curriculum. Now, what we used to do was we evaluate single point solutions, we then drop it into a pathway, and then we would go out and train healthcare professionals in knowing more about these technologies and understanding where in a pathway they would be used. Um, And I don't think we really ever questioned that approach until COVID. And then COVID happened and we couldn't go out anymore and meet with healthcare professionals. And of course, the NHS got really busy. In fact, you know, the planet over healthcare professionals were busy dealing with the crisis. But we also knew that digital had a role to play. And so we started thinking, well, how do we provide access to the content we've got? And we've got a lot of content in a way that's most accessible to the people who need it. And so we we thought, well, we're going to have to do this online, but that isn't enough. So just replicating what we've done face to face, but in this kind of um, situation wouldn't be enough. We wanted it to be in five minute chunks. So the whole of the platform is built in five minute segments of information. And that's really to allow a clinician to do it either in between patients or you can do it from your phone when you're traveling on a bus, or you can do it while you're cooking dinner, but you can do it in small chunks. And the other thing that was really important is that it was independently accredited. And of course, we, we know that we understand that that's really important. So we wanted everything to be CPD accredited because we didn't want this to look like a sales pitch. It wasn't, yeah. it was about engagement and awareness and, and training. So we needed it to be accredited. And then we also wanted amazing partners. Um, So we partnered with Health Education England and lots of ICSs and some Royal Colleges who looked at this content and said, yes, this is something that we need to do. And the way in which we, we built this was we didn't think, again, we didn't say that one size fits all because it doesn't. So what we recognised was how do um, clinicians and healthcare professionals learn? Well, we learn generalist information about our clinical area, and then we go into specialist areas. So that's what we've done with the digital health. There are foundation modules, three key foundation modules, really simple, really. What is digital health? What do I need to think about if I'm going to engage with it? And how do I engage the patient or person in this process? And then on top of those foundation modules, there are then specialist modules. So if I'm a midwife, I'm going to be interested in the midwifery modules. Mm -hmm. If I'm a diabetologist, I'm going to be interested in the diabetes modules. And then you can start to modulise your own package according to your own interest. Now, of course, you might get really interested and want to geek out on um, certain standards. That's fine. You can. If you don't want to, you don't have to. 
Yeah, that's amazing. So, yeah, fantastic. So I guess conscious of time, Liz, and, and we need to wrap the podcast up. But for me, I think the thing that I love most about what we do and um, the conversations that we have is working with customers that are really on the bleeding edge of digital health innovation you know some some of the new technologies that we hear about are absolutely mind-boggling of the mm. things that are, the things that are coming through i would argue that you're even more entrenched in this than we are so for the listeners who would you say are some of the ones to watch in terms of digital health innovation right now so um i mean there's there's about 360,000 digital health technologies and every day about 200 new technologies emerge every single day um what what's also quite worrying though is lots of technologies drop off the marketplace every day as well and quite often there's a real loss then because we've lost something that's been on a journey and has done very well for me um what we need to there's a few key points i think we need to watch and it's predominantly circled around collaborative ventures so you know one of our big messages is one size won't fit everybody so if you take something like a pathway like diabetes, one technology will answer every person who's living with diabetes needs. Um, so if you're wanting to prevent type 2 or you're wanting to manage a type 2 or you've just been newly diagnosed with type 1 and you're a child or you've got gestational diabetes or whatever it is, one technology won't need it all. And so where I can really see the future is that there will be a range of technologies across the pathway and they will start to collaborate. Um, and that collaboration means they're not in direct competition. They recognise the bits that they're going to help the most. But collaboratively, you will see an aggregated return on investment for impact because one technology might not do enough to get you over that ROI for procurement, but on an aggregated view, it absolutely will do. And then more than that, what we'll start to see is an aggregation of data so that data can be viewed across either a pathway or a population. Um, and so I don't like to say, oh, this is the technology because, <laughs> and the reason I don't like to say it is because it isn't the technology. It's, you know, I, I've used the example of diabetes. I live with type one diabetes um, and the length, you know, I've had diabetes, you know, I, I was late on so I was about 30 when I got um, diagnosed with diabetes. And now 15 years later, I've experienced a range of different technologies. Each of them have had a place. So when I was pregnant, I needed something very different. Oh, yeah. Now I'm menopausal, I use something different again. But there are children who are being diagnosed. So I think I'm really keen not to say this is the technology to yeah. watch. What I'm keen to say is that collaboration is king. Um, and that by working together, everybody can get there faster. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The power of collaboration is incredible. So yeah, I think that's a fantastic answer and well done for staying on the fence as best you could. So yeah, I think unfortunately that's all we've got time for today. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing some genuinely fascinating insights, Liz. To hear more from Liz, you can find her on Twitter and on LinkedIn, and we will share the handles after the recording. And you can also find me on Twitter and LinkedIn if you want to connect and learn more about what we do at 6B. But thank you for listening to another episode of the Digital Health Matters podcast. Please remember to subscribe on Spotify, SoundCloud, or YouTube to hear more thoughts from leading figures in the world of digital health. Thanks, Liz. Thank you.